The Undergraduate Research Office, we are here to promote undergraduates getting involved in research, and that's across disciplines here at OSU. Um, this is the fourth time that we've offered this program in uh, conjunction with the Mershon Center. And each time it's a little bit different and it's always a very exciting time and students always tell us how much they value the information that they get here from the um, faculty. Um, when students think of research in general, a lot of people think about laboratory science. But there is, as I said, research going across disciplines here at OSU. And today we're going to hear from faculty who are in the social and behavioral sciences and humanities. Um, it's harder sometimes for students to imagine what research is in those disciplines, and that's what we're going to learn a little bit today. Um, how does one find a topic? What are the resources that one does to um, uses to make a good research project? So I'm not going to talk too much more about this, but like I said, it's always an excellent program. I'm going to let um, Dr. Herman here talk to you, uh, introduce the panelists and the program a little bit more. Um, enjoy, listen, and... Uh, We'll take questions at the end. Yes, learn. Thank you, Amy. I thank all of you for coming, and I want to thank my uh, three colleagues. This is the fourth time we've done this, and the reason we do is that the Mershon Center is a research institute. We are an endowed institute on the south side of the campus, and we're trying to cultivate undergraduates who will do excellent research in the areas related to national security, which actually is a very broad uh, agenda right now. And over the years, we've seen that some students coming to us later in their careers aren't, are not designing or we're not designing research proposals that were always successful in our annual competitions. So working with the undergraduate research office, we hoped maybe we could come into the process earlier and cultivate among students some expertise in how to do this and maybe even some relationship with faculty. And what we've been doing each time, since I don't think there is any single formula, I mean, the center is diverse as the Mershon Center, I've learned that over the years, that some colleagues come at it from a laboratory background and they have a certain kind of way students can fit into their projects. Some coming at it from the humanities come at it with a different uh, approach and students do many uh, more projects that are just solo uh, and so on. So what we've done today is we've brought three uh, very successful professors who have published a lot at different stages in their career and from very different disciplines. We have on my far left Sarah Brooks from the Department of Political Science, who's a specialist in Latin America and particularly comparative political economy. Writes on, well, her current project that Prashant is funding has to do with Brazil, and I'll let, you, let her talk more about that. In my immediate left is Jeffrey Parker. Uh, he has an endowed chair in the Department of History and also a position at the Mershon Center uh, for more than the last decade. He's uh, a very uh, highly regarded historian. He's written on Spain. He's written on the military revolution. He's written on just a host of things. Most recently, uh, the great world crisis in terms of climate change. Uh, he, were, he is, in my view, not a European historian, but increasingly a world historian, meaning that he works in archives in many different languages in all over the world. And on my immediate right is uh, William Cunningham, who is a psychologist. He is one of those more in the labs. Uh, he's working on a project Rashawn is funding on hate and what it is inside the body, I guess, and how it uh, manifests itself in different ways. And we've asked each of them to say a few things about some questions that have been posed by Helene's office, which is mostly how you get a good research question and then how undergraduates could best pursue research here on the campus. So what we'll do, I think, is in the order that they're in the program. Is that reasonable? So just in the way I introduced them, I'll ask my colleagues to start off for a few minutes and uh, give you their insights, and then we'll open this up for discussion. So without further ado, there it is. Oh, I'm sorry. William Cunningham. So reverse order <laughs> uh, Thank you so much for inviting me. In many ways, I think I'm going to be talking about data that's quite different than uh, is typically talked about in um, Rashan-type projects that typically involve political science, sociology, areas of just that history. Um, like I mentioned, I am completely in the lab. Not only am I in the lab, I am a neuroscientist who primarily is looking literally inside the head when trying to understand uh, the world. And so what I want to talk about a little bit today is just 
kind of what we do in what is considered to be affective neuroscience or social neuroscience. You know, what is it that we can learn about the human condition, what we do, from thinking about the brain? Uh, for the most part, the, the idea of axons and dendrites you know, typically seem to be you know, fairly far connected from most of the social sciences. And so when thinking about the tools I use, it's one of the questions, what methodology should you use, what do you want to explore? I think it's one point you can say, well, I use MRIs, I use EEGs, but you know, that's not really you know, the tool that we use. The tool that we use is, trying, is literally the brain. You know, trying to understand how the brain functions, to think about you know, what implications we have. And why is it that perhaps the brain would be important? You know, why should you care about the brain when thinking about kind of social science type phenomena? And what's interesting about thinking about the brain is that oftentimes you can devise experiments in the lab that can kind of test critical aspects of theory that ordinarily would not be able to be tested. And I'm just going to take one example. It's not from my own research, but just in general. And I'm going to take two viewpoints on the idea of emotion and making appropriate decisions. If you go back as far as the 3rd century you know, BCE, you basically find this hypothesis that really dominates the, the way that we think about emotions, the way that we think about the way the world works. And this is really, kind of in many ways, the conventional wisdom, that emotions are bad. You, know, you want to make unemotional decisions to the extent that you're emotional, it's going to reduce rationality, and if we can get rid of emotion from most of our decision making, most of our decisions, well then that's when we're going to make the most idealized decisions, right? We want to be Spock. You know, can contrast that with the kind of view posed by you know, David Hume, right? The idea that in many ways emotions are what we've got. Right? We end up in a situation where pure rationality just isn't going to cut it. You can't actually know all the information. And that we need to actually use emotions that are going to guide us in the right direction. The idea here is simply that emotions are actually what makes us make appropriate decisions. And emotions kind of serve even moral decision making. And even with psychology for the past 100 years, this has been a major debate. You know, are emotions something that are good for decision making? Are emotions something bad? And what's interesting is when we turn to the brain, we can actually get some insights to think about, you know, how can we resolve this? And there's an amazing case of patients who have damage to this area called the orbital frontal cortex, kind of right here above um, your nose, right in the middle of your head. Uh, if you damage this, you can no longer use emotions to guide your decisions. It's basically just completely cut off. You can have so many ways. I, whenever I give a talk, I mention orbital frontal cortex, I always use my seatbelt lecture. The best way to get overfront cortex damage is to not wear your seatbelt, get into a car accident. You don't want to become these people. Well, I guess I'm foreshadowing the data. But the classic case of this guy, Phineas Gage, 100 years ago, working on the railroad, plays with an iron rod, goes through his head. Amazingly, he goes to the doctor. He's completely fine. He can walk to the doctor. Again, went through his eye, on the top of his head, blew out the middle part of his frontal cortex. He could speak. He could do math, he could do problem solving, do complex tasks. His doctors actually sent him home that day. I mean, it's pretty amazing how this guy had no problems whatsoever. Except that uh, he lost his job, he lost all his friends, uh, he did terrible, horrible things. And basically what they found is by his actual skull that went through, popped up the top of his head right there. He was basically unable to use emotions to be able to form any types of decisions and ended up making terrible decisions all the time. So in more recent work, what we've done is that, you know, this is some guy from 100 years ago. We can actually look at this in the lab. Like I said, you don't wear your seatbelt. You can be a permanent participant in one of our studies. Um, you know, there are many people who have damaged orbital frontal cortex. And you can give them tasks like this where they just simply have to learn you know, what is a good deck to choose from? If you want to choose from deck A, B, C, or D. Well, basically decks A and B are considered bad decks. Decks C and D are considered to be good decks. And the reason why they're good is that over time, if you've selected them all the time, it'd be the right decision. Right? Because these things have these giant, huge negatives. Right? Basically, um, sure, you get $100 if you get it right, but you're going to lose 1200 if you get it wrong. 
Right? So over time, you start going in this direction, and you basically learn to kind of be able to not take those hits. Well, what's predictive of successfully learning to do the right thing? Because we find this graph of a patient with damage. These people do not make the right decision. They will continuously take it for the bad decks over and over and over, try to take those immediate rewards without actually learning from any of their mistakes. And if you look at the time course, normal controls over time, again, start slow, but eventually start learning it, where these natural medial orbital frontal patients just are all over the place. And when they find the thing that's most predictive of actually successfully learning this is if you measure the physiology. People start to actually have an emotional physiological response well before they actually can articulate the rule. It's almost like the body knows what it's doing and what you should appropriately do and act on it before you can rationally be able to act upon your decisions. And what's interesting about this, you can take the brain and start looking at trying to find these critical conditions to test you know, theories about emotion, about social relations that go a long way. It's amazing research on psychopathy. Same thing. You have damage to the exact same parts of the brain. You can't use emotions. You hook people up to the GSR. They don't actually have emotional responses. These are your psychopaths that actually are in prison. Uh, according to this hypothesis, it's also some people who do things like Ren Enron. Um, basically, if you don't have emotion, you're going to do terrible, terrible things to people. So, in our lab, actually, this is some of my lab group right here, you know, we don't actually run around causing brain damage in people. Um, the ethics board probably would not approve of that. Um, but we end up using this, this magic machine right here, the uh, MRI. This is the MRI that we use. And what's amazing about MRI is what you can start to do now is you can start to look actually at brain activity within the actual alive, intact human being. Right, so you can give people decision tasks and look at when people are making advantageous versus disadvantageous decisions. Again, with or without conscious awareness. And map out the parts of the brain that are more active or correlated with making appropriate decisions. And again, what we can do is find exactly the same thing. This area associated with emotion, associated with attaching emotion to judgments, leads to actually having appropriate decisions. So I want to quickly discuss this, because generally what my lab does is works on questions of affect and emotion in general. But you know, where's the connection we're trying to make with Rashawn right now? Well, it's on a very specific emotion. It's the emotion of hate. And what's interesting is it's difficult to actually know what hate is actually all about. You know, there's not a really good psychological definition of the phenomenon. And we've been able to articulate several, and so we're going to start looking at the brain to see actually what's going on. Right, one hypothesis is simply that hate, if you hate something, it's just extreme dislike. Right, so it's the most extreme form anchoring that kind of continuous dimension. And we can make a hypothesis about what the brain would look like when you're feeling hate. It's going to be this strong, visceral, bottom-up signal coming from the most primitive parts of the brain feeding forward. Right? And so we make certain predictions about certain brain regions that we associate with that hypothesis. At the same time, there seems to be a lot of suggestion that hate might actually be stemming from a cognitive response. Right? It's not a strong dislike, but rather it's the way that we frame our information, what we allow ourselves to feel. And it has to do with kind of a top-down regulation of what we're feeling. Right? It's the idea that mental frames can shape the emotions that we have. And, for example, a lot of the moral emotions require some kind of cognitive frame that will shape how you're feeling about things at different times. Right? And what the hypothesis here is quite different. Now, this is the easy one. It says, well, perhaps you just cognitively make yourself feel worse. But what we're seeming to find is actually what hate has to do is not making yourself feel worse, but stopping yourself from feeling positive. Make yourself feeling completely unambiguously negative. Right? If something is hated, there's nothing good about it. There has to be no there can be no ambivalence. There can be nothing that makes you even conflicted about your response. Right? And this is a very, very different hypothesis about the phenomenon of the brain. And in some ways, if you want to reverse hate, the types of things that you're going to want to do. Right? It's so not necessarily you want to reduce the negativity, but increase the positivity of someone's feelings. So I'm going to quickly end here on uh, how to develop a good research question. And again, this is just taken from my own experience. I don't think this is really a question that a lot is very easy to articulate. Um, the first thing you have to do is read, and then maybe read, 
But critically, I think that my own history suggests is reading outside your primary field. I was trained as a social psychologist, knowing nothing about the brain when I started. And the more you read outside of your primary field, you start to learn that the same big questions are being asked over and over and over. You know, in philosophy, we'll talk about value. Social psychology, they talk about attitudes. In cognitive science, they talk about affect. Neuroscience, they talk about reinforcement learning. And basically, throughout all of the literature, you know, people have been writing about their hopes, dreams, fears, and aspirations. You know, these are all things that we all study similar across people when we talk about multi or interdisciplinary research. And we can really learn from each other's frames the way we conceptualize variables. And actually, I'm losing track of time. How, am I out or? Okay, well then I will quickly wrap this up. So I'm talking, I usually talk a thousand miles a minute, and I'm actually talking slowly. Yeah, oh, this is slow for me. Um, but given that my own research line suggests that emotions guide decisions, well, let's use that. Trust your gut. That's something I think is critical for developing a line of research. Right? If you want to do research, if you want to make research your career, you have to be passionate about what you're doing. Right? You can't just do it because your advisor's doing it. You can't just do it because it seems like it's trendy. You have to really care about it. Right? You want to have sleepless nights worrying about how this one little piece of data is bugging you. You want to accidentally take a four-hour shower because you, know, you just can't let something out of your mind. You need to make it a core part of your identity and trust the things that you care about to be able to form a research question. Right? A friend of mine once said, you have to find what bugs you. Because if you find what bugs you and you care about it already, that's the thing where you're going to invest the time to be able to go do it right. The other thing you need to do is look for anomalies. You know, you want to trust your data. You want to trust what's going on. You want to try to figure out what's not fitting your expectations. Right? In science, although it never really happens this way, or it happens far more rarely than it should, science must move forward by rejecting old ideas and building new ideas. You're supposed to care about when things aren't working the way you expect and use that as an insight about what needs to be different, what needs to be explained because it's not working. You, know, you don't want to be you know, putting these square pegs in round holes. The other idea is you just want to think big. Right? The idea is you want to have a research question that can explain a lot of things. I started off by being interested in prejudice. And if I understand how prejudice works, I can explain a specific behavior. But if I can understand how preferences work, well, preferences will explain how prejudices work, but also say consumer behavior and larger events. Right? By having the bigger frame, you can influence more things. But again, because of this idea of trust and gut, you don't ever want to lose track of what got you started in the first place. And pulling this all together, what you really want to do is kind of find a larger framework that can kind of pull everything together. And the example that oftentimes gets used in psychology is the question of what makes people attracted to one another. Right? And there's two very obvious things you can say. You know, birds of a feather flock together. Right? That's right. They also have opposites attract. Those are two opposite theories. One actually is the opposite of the other. The trick is you have to figure out how to actually get them both to be true at the same time. And it took a long time for Abe Tess to come up with this idea of self-evaluation maintenance. You want to be similar on some things and different on others. On things that are central to your identity, you want to be different than your close to others. On things that are more peripheral, you want to be more similar. And what I always tell students is you want to think about the way your introduction textbook. I'm not sure how introduction textbooks look in other ways, but in psychology, every single chapter takes exactly the same form. First person of chapter, third third of chapter says, really person A says X. Second third is person B says Y. And all along comes person, brilliant person C, who's revolutionized the field, who says both are true at the same time. And my advice for a good research question is find your own both. And thank you. I don't know if we, take questions. we have time for questions. I think we're going to hold questions until the end. Great. Okay. The questions that I've been asked to address today are principally once you've 
discover the anomaly. Once you've discovered what bugs you, I think we'll take that up quite well. You have to launch a research project. You have to convince someone else to buy into it, either an advisor or a funding agency, whether it's the Undergraduate Research Office or the Mershon Center. You have to develop a proposal, find an advisor, and move the the project forward. Um, The questions that I was asked to propose to address are first, what theories and facts do you need to know? How do you start? Where do you go from here? Well, principally, the first thing you really have to do is persuade someone that that thing that bugs you, or that anomaly that you've discovered, is important. Not just an advisor who's going to help guide you through the process, but again, a funding agency to develop a proposal. It has to be important both in substantive terms, in the real world, something meaningful that people are going to want to read, to invest in, but also theoretically that our understanding of this process, that people have tried to answer this question, and that anomaly that I've discovered is meaningful, that it would turn on its head that we always thought, for instance, democracy operated in a way that the average voter would be dominant. But we look at some countries, like highly unequal nations like Brazil, where the average voter is quite poor, yet they don't hold sway over politics in the way we'd expect our theories to mean. So you'd find a theoretical gap in your knowledge that you can situate your project in. So being able to frame your project in terms of its importance, both substantively, such as if you were interested in violence in Brazil, you'd make the point that, well, in recent years, the homicide rate has been on the order of 105 per day across the country. 105 people murdered per day would be more or less equivalent to low-level war zones. So you'd make a point that the process that you're interested in is one that's meaningful in real-world terms, but also significant in theoretical terms. You'd make the... And, of course, the question is, how do you make that point? I think Wolf's point was a very good one. You read, read, and do lots more reading. You have to be able to get your theoretical ducks in a row. You have to address the literature. The first question is, how have other people addressed this question? Chances are you aren't the first person to have wondered, how does violence affect democracy? If so, then you have to start reading. You go through the relevant literature in your discipline and else, you know, even beyond it, other approaches. And to be able to, once you've read this, Say, well, people have asked this question and they've approached it from the following three ways. Some people have looked at culture and some people have looked at economy and some people have looked at personal. You you read enough and read enough about the way others have addressed it to be able to establish and organize that literature. To say, well, people have taken this approach and that approach to answering the question. But here's what we still don't understand about this issue. Once you've read enough to be able to identify that, then you can make a case that there is a a gap in our knowledge that your research is going to address. So we have to know it's important, and we have to know how people have come about it in the first place so that you can develop your expectations as part of advancing a research project. You have to be able to say, here's what I think is the answer. You have to read enough to be able to say, develop a theoretically and empirically grounded set of hypotheses or expectations for what you think might be the answer. But you need to go out and research and test. So you have to read enough to be able to develop that from the theory to say, well, people have said that this operation, the effect of democracy on violence should operate this way, or violence on democracy should work that way. So being able to say what other scholars and researchers have done, their approaches, what they think explained it sets up the position of how your research will fit. Doing so, again, will set up the methodological approaches so you can identify the techniques that others have used and how your techniques, you have to be able to justify the techniques that you're using are methodologically sound, 
theoretically sound, and your expectations are reasonable to explain this puzzle, this anomaly. Again, all of this is both makes a proposal for research more persuasive, more likely to be funded, and makes your research more sound. That way you can point out both that your research project is sound in its method and proposal, and that you have a real gap left in our understanding of this question. Now, I was also asked related to this question is what classes do you need to take? And of course, that's really impossible to answer, except to say, um, in terms of you know, quantitative, how many classes do you need? But you need to have enough classes to be able to be exposed to the principal theoretical approaches in your discipline, whatever that discipline might be, so that you can understand in three-year coursework, see the way people carry out research, reading more than beyond simply textbooks to get to the advanced level where you're reading primary research and see what is the style of a research paper? How is it that people are going about doing it? What are the major theoretical frameworks that explain it? For most of your research, it's going to be self-directed. You're reading much more beyond anything you've ever read in the classes, and you're going much more narrowly into it. But you bring with you the tools and the basic paradigms to give you the lay of the land that will allow you to go beyond what you've learned in your classes. Again, most of the research will not be simply using weeks one through three's theoretical frameworks and arguments and applying them to my question, but you're going to be going beyond that. So coursework is important, but it also has its limits. Important, of course, is being able to take in whatever your discipline is, a methodological training course, whether it's in ethnographic research, quantitative methods, human subjects, interviews, whatever is appropriate for your discipline to understand and to be able to perform research in a way that is um, sound and appropriate for your discipline. Now, the second major question that I was asked to address is whether you can, you know, bat people in the head and give them a frontal cortex, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> in order to, you would get really great data if we could just go around bapping you all in the head and imposing a, um, a brain injury upon you all. But that's frowned upon by a part of the university that we call the Institutional Review Board, um, of which I am a member. So watch it. <laughs> you stopped us. <laughs> Undergraduates also, it's not just for um, the faculty to be concerned about this, but order, in order for your grant to be carried out and to um, have approval to take this, you know, wonderful, you've developed your proposal, you've persuaded the Mershon Center to fund you, now you get to go into the field. Not quite yet. The university has, and across the world more and more, um, research institutions, governments are understanding that um, it's important to consider the, the, the risks that research can impose on humans when we do research on them. That you need approval of both your methods, your design, your proposal by this institutional review board. It exists simply to make sure that we're not torturing people, um, that we're not imposing risks upon them, that the way that scholars are going about gathering their data when human subjects are involved is in accordance with the highest ethical standards. So it's essential that if your research involves humans, whether you're simply going out and talking to people or intervening with them, shaping their lives in some way, whether it's you know taking their time away from work um, or in some way imposing anything more than a minimal risk upon them. If you're just going to stand in the middle of the quad and watch some ethnography of you know, people going to a football game, that's fine if you're simply just observing them. But if you bring them out of their ordinary practices, if you impose anything that could be considered a risk upon them, your intervention with them, um, questions will be asked. So what do you do? Well, as I mentioned, the, the IRB exists really to make sure that ethical conduct of your research, meaning that your subjects have the capacity to say no, they have the capacity to pull out of your study or your experiment, um, that you're not coercing them in some way. Um, so if you're doing research involving children or people without the, the ability to make a meaningful consent, um, precautions must be weighed. People must be able to understand 
the, the risks imposed upon them. And this, there's a lot more consideration of the, the risks when it involves biomedical research than most of us in the, the social sciences that don't deal with tissue so much. Um, but the, the goals are minimizing risks and making sure that any risks you do impose in people are weighed by the balance of knowledge. And again, persuading the IRB of the importance of your question, you're always turning into them in a, a protocol as well. So what you would do with the IRB, the first thing you do is you go to the, we don't have um, internet hook up there, but there's the link for the um, Office of Responsible Research Practices. Um, it's important for everyone who's carrying out human subjects research to be trained. We have an online training course called Collaborative Institutional Training Initiative that you take an online course and you learn about things like the principles. Why is it that this is so important? What are what does it mean to minimize risk? What is an ethical um, treatment of human subjects all about? Um, once you take that, you can submit your project and its protocol and answering questions, and the links are all on that page um, to the IRB for approval. Now, it's often a very opaque and mysterious um, project process, but it doesn't have to be. Um, important tips to know is that very often your research can be considered exempt um, from all of the scrutiny from the IRB if you have less intervention with the human subjects, if they're unlikely to be in a, a situation of risk. Um, you can communicate with the IRB. Even before you submit your proposal, call them up. All the contact is on that link page for the, the staff of the IRB. You can find out if you can circumvent the process altogether, if they can simply give you an exemption and you're on your way. Um, otherwise, if not, you can always even just attend the meeting to be able to answer questions from them. It's not um, a secret tribunal, um, but you can go and they can speak to you and give you direct feedback and you can get um, help from them in preparing your proposal in a way that's most likely to be approved. But again, if human subjects are involved in any, to any extent in your research, where you're dealing with real people and not simply either a database or um, not intervening with them at all, then it would be important um, to get that approval. And again, working with them, communicating them with them throughout the process, they're there to make sure you can do your research rather than to impede it. So um, take advantage of the, all that contact information on the ORRP page, and that should help you make it through the process of getting IRB approval. Thanks. Um, first things first, do you know how many hours you have to put in to get a degree here? How many hours? Right. How much credit are you going to get for an undergraduate research project? How many? That's on the upper limit. Uh, between 10 and 30. So you need to be sure that this is an investment that you want to make. So you need to start by defining the goal. Why are you going to do this? What is the end product? In my discipline, it's a senior honours thesis. About 60 pages, two chapters, an introduction, a conclusion. Presenting evidence that no one has presented before. How do you get that? That's what I want to talk about for the next 10 minutes. There is money available. Moshan Centre has a number of uh, generous scholarships for undergraduate. President Guy has made it one of his targets. So if you really want to do it, there's money for you to do it. But you've got to really want it. History requires you to interrogate sources about people and things. In some cases, you can interrogate people who are alive 
If you want to write about Vietnam, there are plenty of Vietnam vets about that you can talk to. If you want to know about printing before the computer, there are still people my age who can remember linotype, hot type setting. But if you need to do that, you have to go to the IRB. But if you do the 16th century, as I do, live subjects are few and far between, and the IRB sort of tunes out once you're dead. <laughs> so I want to talk about how you research dead people and what they wrote, and in particular, what they wrote and kept in archives. Now, this is, for someone my age, this is very... No, that was wrong. Okay. Click right. Yes. Most of what dead people write are in archives. Now, if you're going to do this, as I say, you really, really want to do it, you really want to choose somewhere exotic, like Spain. Don't go to Manchester and study sewage disposal in the 19th century. Go to Spain. Go to Simancas. You get to the door. It's in a castle. I, I kid you not. This is the archive where I work. You get to the door. And you think, I've forgotten three things. Now, what have you forgotten? The first thing you forgot to do is to define the project. So this is my first topic. How do you get those good research questions in history? Now, history, like most other disciplines, is question-driven. You start by identifying a problem or a question, or a set of problems and questions. You don't just choose a topic. By asking a question, you avoid plunging into the enormous ocean of the past without any sense of direction. Because although the ocean is indeed vast, you know what you're looking for. You have specific things, specific questions to which you seek an answer. You have a framework. All right, so how do you find that framework? How do you identify those problems? How do you, as you so eloquently put it, well, how do you find out what bugs you about dead people? Modesty almost forbids me to use my own research as an example. I was a senior, like you, in 1964-65, just as America got going in Vietnam. And I read every day about how the world's greatest empire and foremost military power failed to suppress its opponents thousands of miles away. I was studying Spain and the Spanish Empire, which was in the 16th century, the world power. It literally was, a, and people at the time said, it was an empire on which the sun never set. It's the first one in history. And one of those little places, does this actually point as well? You're so clever. Uh, the Netherlands, okay? A thousand miles from Spain. Rebels in 1568. Spain takes 80 years before it gives up. 80 years of struggling. So whereas Vietnam more or less 8 years. We're... Spain is there for 80. So in the end it does hold on to the southern part which is called Belgium today and it grants independence to the northern part called the Netherlands. This is why there are two states in the Netherlands where once there was only one. So the problem I addressed in my first piece of research was why did Spain fail to put down the Dutch revolt? It took me 300 pages of thesis, later 300 pages of book. You only need 60. But you still need to begin with the big questions, which is a point that both of my colleagues made. Start big and gradually move down the ladder until you get to something that you can do in 60 pages. Why did Spain fail to suppress the Dutch Revolt? Okay, so what strategies did it use that didn't work? Why didn't they work? And then you get into the more concrete questions. And you can go in one of two ways. Either you can go in time, or you can go in personalities. Why did one person screw up? Why did everyone screw up in one period? Plenty to choose from. Uh, and I uh, suggest, for example, that you could look at one of the moments when Spain negotiated with its enemies, but nevertheless failed to make those concessions which would bring peace and end a war which it simply couldn't win. So you can't answer the whole question 
you can answer one piece of it, but by answering a piece that fits into a larger puzzle, by looking at one piece of water that forms part of the ocean, you ensure that the conclusions you reach from that specific study will illuminate a broader issue. Don't be like the theologians who are answering the questions that nobody asks. <laughs> That's the first piece of the three pieces of advice that I'd like to share with you today. Start big and never lose sight of the big picture. Now the second thing you forgot as you went off to the archive happily on your way to Simancas you didn't get a mentor and that was a serious oversight because scholarship is a social process. No one generates the big questions alone let alone answering the big questions alone. Everybody draws on the work of others. And even if you study dead people, there are plenty of live people around who can help to orient you, as we are doing today. We're still alive. You haven't thrust something through my frontal lobe. That doesn't work. <laughs> okay. Uh, seek out the people who know. Did you perhaps enjoy a course? Did you enjoy a particular instructor? And did that instructor perhaps carelessly on one occasion said, now, this is a very interesting problem and no one's yet really figured it out. And then on they go, there's your subject. You track them back to their office hours. You beard them in their cave. And you say, did you mean that? Is it really a subject that's interesting and nobody's on it? I mean, what are they going to say? No, I was only joking. It was a really dumb question. Sod off. No, they're going to say, yes, it really is a good question. They may say, well, it's probably too ambitious for 60 pages, but if you tighten the focus a little bit, it'll work. Or they may say, no, I think it's a great question, I don't know the answer, but he does. And you're on your way. But you need someone who's going to work with you. That's how I found my research topic. I was in a lecture and somebody said, no one has figured out how Spain suppressed the Dutch revolt. So I thought, hmm... Followed him back to his office. He's been stuck with me for 40 years. And I suspect most of my colleagues found them the same way. So listen, learn, and act. Find someone you like. Go and find out if they'll work with you. It's easier than you think. But the third thing is much more difficult. The third thing you forgot to do before you made your way to Simancas was to read the sources. Now, the reason you have to do that first is because research in the archives, especially archives abroad in exotic places like Spain, is very expensive. Columbus may have its shortcomings, but it sure is cheap to live here. Abroad is not. Think of your research trip as a journey in a taxi. And the taxi meter starts the minute you close the door behind you from your home. So you need to do as much research you can as you can before you go. And I want to have three aspects, and I'm going to stop. First thing is the secondary literature. The secondary literature is what other people wrote. What did other people before you write on the subject? Don't reinvent the wheel, as my colleague said. But let me say a little bit about how you read. It, this is a big library. It used to be much bigger. There used to be two and a half million books in here. Now there's only 700,000. But that's quite a lot. You don't have time to read them all. Ever since kindergarten, we've been told that you read a book by beginning at the beginning, go through it to the end, and then stop. Now, you don't have time for that. It's essential to read actively. That's passive reading. That's learning to be a sponge. You don't have time to be a sponge. You're going into the sea. You can only absorb that much water. First, you look at where the author shows her or his hand. You look at the subtitle to the book, which is obviously, which is almost always more informative than the title. Then you look at the table of contents. Then you look at the introduction, you look at the conclusion. If it's still interesting, and often this is where you tune out. If it's still interesting, you begin, you look at the first and the last paragraphs of each chapter. And only if they are all interesting do you then plunge in a little further. You decide, well, I suppose I'm going to have to look at this. And I'm going to look at those parts that address my subject. And I'm going to look at the footnotes. Footnotes are the key. Because the footnotes will guide you to the sources, to the archives, where you're going to find something that that guy didn't find. So read actively. 
But remember that you're looking for things relevant to you. The person whose research you're reading wrote stuff that was interesting to them. But it's not their project that you're doing. It's your project. So read actively to find out what is interesting to you. This will enable you to master the material and it will save you a lot of time and energy. So having looked at the second resources, what other people have said, then you look at the sources they cite that you can look at, which are called the printed primary sources, the ones that the other authors have flagged for you, if you wish. That's the second category there. Now, there's an enormous amount available to you without you even raising your butt from your chair, let alone leaving your home and getting in the taxi. You can get some of them through OSU's subscription. One of them is EEBO, which is Early English Books Online. Everything printed in English before 1700 has been scanned, digitized, and some of it is searchable. Every book. And for the 18th century, you have EECO, 18th century collections online. Both of them you get through OSU. They're both for subscription, but OSU has a subscription. If you're in your dorm, I think you can get straight on. If you're at home, you, you have off-campus login, and then you're through, and then you can log in and do it from your home. So there's everything printed in England before 1800, and all American titles in English before 1800, all on eco. There's Menso, Medieval and Early Modern Sources Online which has got scanned and searchable versions of most of the record publications you would want for doing British history. If the history, if you can't be as exotic as Spain, if it's got to be London or Edinburgh or even Dublin, then MEMSO is what you want. They've scanned in all of that stuff. Some other material is available online, free. You don't have to go through OSU. The first one is... Uh, uh, it's not intuitive, but it's absolutely wonderful. It's the Internet Archive uh, out of Toronto and Canada. And uh, you just type in that uh, URL uh, and you will find a scan not searchable. Not searchable. Memso is searchable. Internet Online is not. But you need the references. You go through, they have a table of contents, just like reading a book, just like an e electronic bookshelf. Uh, Gallica is a little more intuitive. It's every book in French uh, uh, in the Bibliothèque Nationale has been scanned, and you can check it out. Uh, the next one, which is a very long one, um, is the Spanish one, MCU, Ministerio de Cultura, Punto uh, E.S.A. Uh, for Spain, and that's all the Spanish books that have been scanned. It's not as complete as Ebo and Eco, but it's better than nothing. And it's a lot cheaper. And then if you really want to be esoteric, DBNL, Digitale Bibliothek voor de Nederlandse Letteren, which is a lot of 16th and 17th century Dutch books online. Every country's got one. Every language has got one. So just check it out. Google, go online and find it. I've just got four for you there. Uh, the Internet Archive, which has uh, material in all languages. Gallica, which is French. MCU, which is Spanish, and DBNL, which is the material you would want for Dutch books. So, read those, and then we come on to the uh, third and final category, which is the most difficult, which is manuscript. Now, here too, the internet has come to our rescue. I mean, it's unimaginable to me that I can sit at home in northwest Columbus and access documents in the archives of Symancus, the place that I showed you at the beginning, uh, while the archive itself is closed. I can then print them off, read them, I can enhance them, I can get the bleed from the other side out. It's just extraordinary. Uh, uh, the two I've put up there are both to do with Britain, because it's in English, uh, 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 nationalarchives.gov. Uh, that's a really interesting source for projects because it's stuff that's just been released. It's the stuff that the British National Archive has just released. Uh, two years ago, they had all the documents on the Suez Crisis from 1956, which had been closed for 60 years. And then suddenly, it's all there. And you're as good as anybody else. Nobody's seen this stuff. When the National Archive closes a series off, nobody gets to see it. When it releases it, it goes online, and you have just as much chance of getting something really, really new as I do or anybody else does. 
So it's a pretty good thing if you're looking, if you want to do British history, that's a real good resource. Look at what they've just released. Because you know, nobody's seen it. Nobody's written about it. Uh, Gail C. Engage. That's... Um, well, let me, let me show you what that is. It's, uh, uh, again, absolutely extraordinary. It's digitised the documents. All of the state paper series for the Tudors is now available online. It all looks like this. I'm going to tell you about this in a moment. This is actually a letter from Mary Tudor to her horrible husband, Philip II of Spain. Uh, but it's part of what's called the State Papers Online series. So this is gaelcengage.co.uk state papers. Only institutions can subscribe to this, so you do have to go through OSU, uh, the OSU site. But when you get there, everything has been scanned, uh, and it's linked to the catalogs. At the top it will say, I don't think I captured it on this image, this is just the document, but when you go online it will say, check calendar entry. Calendar is the name, the fancy British name. Sorry, I spent seven years in Illinois, that's why I have a funny accent. Uh, but it's the name for the uh, detailed catalogue, the detailed description of the document. So it will give you a link to a description of the document, and then you get the real thing. And you can print it out. Just extraordinary. State papers online. But, of course, you've got to be able to read it. So this is my last slide. There's a site which will teach you to do that, too. It's also run by the National Archive. Uh, if you want to learn about Spanish, Dutch, French, German, paleography... You're going to need to get a book. But there are books which will show you how to do it. Uh, but this is the English, uh, National, British National Archive, which offer you a paleography tutorial. Uh, uh, again, it's, it's, it's clearly spelled out, nationalarchives.gov.uk, okay, so you know where it is. Paleography, you know what it is. And it will, it will take you through how you learn to read documents like this. So you can read what Mary Tudor said to her horrid husband. So that's my uh, last piece of advice to you before you get in a taxi. You don't have time to learn paleography. You don't have time to learn this, how to read this stuff. That's what I did. <laughs> I went off happily. My, my guy gave me a great topic, but he didn't say, referee, you need to learn how to read it before you go. And it'll take you time. So read the secondary sources. Through that, go to the printed primary sources. Learn how to read the manuscript you're going to need. And then get on the bus or go into the taxi, have a fantastic couple of months in Spain, get yourself a wee tan, come back, write up, and there's your 35 hours. Thank you. This has been great. Um, let's take some questions. Um, I'm sure you have some questions out there. is that, and actually this is probably good to mention, uh, the last thing you want to do is appear as a senior and decide that you want to do a research project in somebody's lab. Uh, typically, what oftentimes happens is sophomores, freshmen and sophomores, start volunteering in labs and get a lot of the skills of the lab work so that by the time you get to your fourth year, you actually have the skills necessary because you're just not going to be able to pick it up in time in one year to have a completed project. Um, so that said, you can always, at least in the lab sciences, volunteer. Uh, it depends on how much and what you want to do, because what will end up happening is, admittedly, your first year of doing anything in the lab is going to be front work. Uh, it's kind of the initiation process, but it also gets you into it. And uh, say my lab, I would probably accept you know, anyone who you know, has decent cheap. I mean, we get so many about people asking. We actually have to interview and look at GPA and transcripts and so on and so forth. But um, we don't necessarily care what the majors. If you're interested in the line of work, you're going to give some give something back. But there is a time commitment to actually learn how to do it. So for us, it doesn't matter as long as you're willing to put in the time and have the time to be able to put in. I'm not sure how it is for the other fields. Certainly the major doesn't matter as much as if you're taking enough classes and 
To, um, that's a great question, by the way. Thank you very much. I think there's two aspects to it. One is the lab-based disciplines, in which you really do have to stay here. And the others are the things that I do, uh, where you can, in fact, do a junior year abroad or a semester abroad. And for that, the, right, the, the point of departure is the same. That's to say, if you want to do it as a senior, you're too late. If you want to do it as a junior, you're almost too late. The time to choose, I'm afraid, is as a sophomore. And then do a little coursework, get oriented before you go. And take off the second half of your If you're really ahead of the game, take off the whole of your junior year. There are a lot of exchange programs. Uh, the university where I used to teach in Britain, St. Andrews, uh, had well over 100 students a year doing junior year abroad from all sorts of universities. And most of them, we have a reciprocal arrangement. That's to say, you pay OSU fees, you don't pay their fees, which, believe me, is an advantage. Uh, and uh, uh, your credits count. So you would register for some courses over there, and they would transfer in as the same number of hours here. So if you don't have to stay in a lab, it's a wonderful opportunity to see the world at OSU's expense. So you no problem. Uh, uh, you, you still need a mentor, but you can have two. You might have one in one area and one in another. Uh, but if you want to do it, if it's what comes to you, uh, find a way. Uh, and you will find someone. We have, what, 3,000 faculty? You'll find someone here who will work with you. But it's often uh, uh, very fruitful to work with two people. So you get two people giving you ideas, giving you introductions, giving you orientation. But I don't think, and this is perhaps a part of the first question that we didn't answer, it does not have to be in your major. It's customary. The normal progression would be it's something that grows out of the class you've done. You work with someone, you hear someone, you like what he or she said, and then you work with them. It doesn't have to be that way. Uh, uh, if, you, if you get a bee in your bonnet, then find someone who's interested in your bee. And these actually, to elaborate slightly, it doesn't even have to be within an area. Uh, I mean, there are some crazy things that are happening these days. Uh, there are philosophers who are collaborating with psychologists. There are... Uh, it's amazing the degree of interdisciplinariness that's actually occurring now. And if you have an interesting enough question, and you can build, say, the team of two or three mentors that you need, for the most part, it's a great question. We're going to be excited to want to explore it, and many times faculty would like to collaborate with each other far more, but it's usually the students who bring the faculty together, or so the faculty gain the faculty together. Uh, because a lot of research does involve reading and developing hypotheses, and you know, coming uh, into the impression that it seems it was overwhelming how much uh, information there is to, you know, pop through before you can find something that's specific to yourself. Um, but as a freshman, like, what would you what would you say would define like the transition from I'm looking for a question, I'm reading through work, and I find things that are interesting to I'm actually working on a research project on this? Like, I mean, obviously you want a mentor to maybe help you develop a question or to help you answer the question. But um, what would you say is the is the you know the biggest event in let's say undergraduate research that actually defines um, when when you actually begin to start approach that question individually? That's a fantastic question. And it's one of those things where I'm convinced that we all have late theories of how we did it, and we're probably all wrong with our late theories of how we all did it. My guess is it's probably far more gradual than anything deliberate. Um, 
you know, watching graduate students now, I think that what's up happening is the more people struggle to explicitly have the goal of tomorrow I'm going to do a research project, the less likely that tomorrow they will have a research project. Um, I think that in my experience, it seems that just being open to the world of ideas, talking to people, talking to you know, other people in the dorm, other students, just having conversations with faculty. I think that this happens, I fear to say, unconsciously, you know, to some degree. And one day you almost realize that you have a question. I know that's probably the least helpful thing I can say, but that's why I suggest to read, read, and read some more. Because the more you're exposed to information, the more that these things are likely to congeal, you know, come together in some kind of interesting way. Um, so it's, it's, it's a patience, but uh, the more you know, the more likely you're going to be able to see the whole. Sure. I would agree with that and say um, more than even just in your own research and reading, if you find that you're taking different classes that can approach a similar question or shed light on it from